0: Well, thank you for that in- introduction. <laughs> and it's great to be with you. And I want you to know how much I respect and admire your pastor, Rob McCoy, and his wife, Michelle. They're great friends. I've had the chance to speak with him all around the country for the last several years. And I'm just always inspired by him. Well, it's uh, an honor to be here. I'm going to talk about two different books. One is called Who is the King in America? And then one is called Miracles in American History. And uh, I. Uh, Apologize for wearing a suit coat. I'm still a recovering Midwesterner, I guess. Uh, It's great to be in California. Um, So the um, way I start off is, uh, by the way, I have a website, AmericanMinute.com. I send out a free daily history email. But we look at history, and the idea is that uh, there's not that much of it. There's only 6,000 years of recorded human history. Really? Yeah, we're not talking about, you know, fossils. We're talking about human beings writing down human records. And so the first writing was um, a Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Today, that's Iraq. And you take a stick, poke it in clay. That was the beginning of writing around 3300 B.C. And the... Clicker's a little slow today. So the, the Egyptians invented hieroglyphics around 3000 BC. And the, uh, even if I move this way, the clicker, maybe, yeah, um, the Chinese invented their pictograms, their characters, around 2600 BC. So this has documented the origin of writing, and it's really not that long ago. So you round it out, three or 4,000 B.C. were around 2,000 A.D. That's around five or 6,000 years of recorded history. So Franklin Roosevelt said, 5,000 years of recorded history have proven that mankind has always believed in God in spite of the many abortive attempts to exile God. So he mentions there's 5,000 years. Another quote is from the uh, Richard Overy Times Complete History of the World. He said, Miracles do not cluster, and what has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution, for if the American Constitution should fail, there will be anarchy throughout the world. So he's mentioning 6,000 years, and he says something unique happened here. Another one is um, <laughs> there's a little couple second delay here. So after a peer, this is James Wilson who signed the Declaration. He said, after a period of 6,000 years since creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding that system of government under which they should live. So again, smart guy, 6,000 years, something unique happened in America. And so as we go through this history, uh, we see that 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. How many of you have met someone who's lived 100 years or close to it? Maybe a grandmother? We're talking 60 grandmothers, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. It's not that long ago. But it's also been a 6,000-year quest to rule the world. So what do these records show? They show that power keeps wanting to concentrate into the hands of one person. The Bible has the story of Nimrod Tower of Babel. Jewish commentators said Nimrod wanted to build a tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So it sort of had this defiant in-your-face attitude toward God. What does God do? He comes down, confuses the languages, the people scatter. And so we see this first illustration of concentrated power defiantly against God and separated power. Have you ever seen the, um, the movie The Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger? And there's this killer metal robot from the future. They finally blow it up, and everybody sighs relief. But then the little pieces get into little silvery little droplets and they come together into this silvery pool. And out of the pool comes the hand of the Terminator and it climbs out and chases them again. Like, how do we get rid of this thing? And so God took the power of Babel, the tower, and scattered it. But every generation since, there's been this push to reconcentrate the power, the tower of Babel, and to dominate people's lives defiantly against God. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, it just uh, is an interesting study. So um, I'm going to try to scoot closer to my clicker. Maybe if I get closer, it'll go faster. So um, the most common form of government is a king. And have you ever seen a Nautilus shell? And it does the little circle, then a little bigger, a little bigger, bigger, bigger. If you plot these empires out, you see they go from small to bigger to bigger. So Gilgamesh, King of Aruk, right? Uh, First book ever written in any language was the Epic of Gilgamesh, 2500 BC. But he put a wall around a city. That was like a novel thing, right? And then there's another one, 2250 BC. Sargon conquers a bunch of walled cities from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean, and he has the first empire. And then you have the king of Assyria conquers a bunch, and he has the first empire. Did you know Assyria is mentioned in the Bible? It says where Garden of Eden is, east of Assyria. (laughs) Now, obviously, they wrote it way after the fact, but it's mentioned. And then, so the Assyrians had a big empire, but theirs was conquered by Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and meanwhile you got two thousand years of Egyptian pharaohs, and then as the time goes on, uh, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. The Persians are conquered by Alexander the Great, and it gets bigger. They're conquered by the Romans. Gets bigger. They're conquered by Attila the Hun. Gets bigger. They're conquered by uh, the, the Muslim sultans. Right? They conquered from the Persian Gulf all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and then you got Genghis Khan has the largest contiguous land empire in world history. Conquers from Korea to Hungary kills 30 million people. And then you have the maritime empires at sea with Portugal and Spain. The sun never set on the Spanish empire. And then you got uh, France, but ultimately England. The king of England had the largest empire that planet earth had ever seen. Clearly there's a global goal in mind. And if these dictator, did, dictators didn't die off, uh, one of them would have had the whole world under their thumb by now. So in that sense, death is a blessing. Thank death a blessing? Yeah, I mean, at least it gives the people a breather so they don't have this dictator you know, dominating their lives. And, uh, and the dilemma is that it could happen to any one of us. Any one of us could be turned into the dictator. Like, oh, really? Yeah, let's think. You get to be the king. Everything's pretty good until you have a sister with a teenage son that drinks and drives and hits somebody with the car, and now he's facing mandatory manslaughter charges and tw- 10 years in prison. And your sister comes begging to you and says, you're not going to let my little Johnny get locked up, are you? What are you gonna say to your sister? "Mm, I'll let little Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. Guess what? As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. You just sent ripples through your kingdom that if you're family or friends of the king, you get special treatment. And if you're not family and friends, you don't get it. And if you're an enemy, you're gonna be tempted to, to get squashed, right? And so the problem is it's inside of the human DNA, right? And so as the centuries go on, the kingdoms got bigger, the king of England had the biggest. America's founders decided we didn't they didn't like that, and so they split it. So the power wants to concentrate. The movie The The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf tells Frodo, always remember, Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. Power wants to concentrate. And I think it goes back to the fall in the garden and Cain killing Abel and selfishness coming into the human DNA. And so you put some babies in a playpen, one of them will take the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one of them is the bully hogging the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique, and one of them is the diva. <laughs> you put some people in the woods, one of them is the Indian chief. And you put them in an inner city, one of them's a gang leader. And all a king is, in a sense, is a glorified gang leader. <laughs> Right? You're friends with the king. It's a hierarchical system. You're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason, or you're a slave. And this pyramid structure to society just keeps repeating itself. And whether you're an Atahualpa, the king of Peru during the Incan Empire, everyone was an employee of the state. Or King Kamehameha in Hawaii, or the Indian Maharajas, or the Chinese emperors, or whatever. It keeps repeating itself. You're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends, you're less equal. You're, you're a slave, or you're dead. And so uh, we see that in, in Europe, they Christianized it and called it the divine right of kings. God chose me to be the king, so whatever my will is, must be God's will, because he put me here, so I can pretty well do anything I want. And so um, you see that uh, the king of France was Louis XIV, the sun king. He's called the sun king because his subjects were planets that revolved around him every day. And he says, I am the state. Wow, talk about an ego. And then he says, it is legal because I wish it. <laughs> oh, that's easy. The law is nothing more than the king's wishes. And he just happens to have a big army to force it down the throat of everyone. <laughs> And here's King uh, James of England. He says kings are God's lieutenant's sit upon God's throne. And so, uh, it took centuries for America to break away from a king. And again, the most powerful king on the planet was the king of England. He was a globalist. And he controlled, you know, India and Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, and America. And America's founders decided they didn't like this globalist king telling us what to do. And so, uh, anyway, um, I skipped past a whole bunch of stories, but America's founders were coming over. We're getting close to, not close, but Thanksgiving's gonna come up before too long. And uh, we talk about the Pilgrim story. Why do we talk about that? Well, it was a critical pivot point. What do I mean? Kings ruled, and they ruled over their colonies. And there were three types of colonies a company colony, where the king approved the bylaws for a company that ran the colony the British East India Company, the Virginia Company, but the king was in charge. Second is a royal crown colony. So Virginia Company colony went bankrupt. They said to the king, it's your problem now. He sends over a royal governor. So now he's ruling directly. Third type is a proprietary colony where the king gives the whole thing as property to a friend, like Lord Baltimore got all of Maryland. William Penn got all of Pennsylvania. But the king is deciding how it's going to be run. When the pilgrims were going to come across to Jamestown, they get blown off course, land at Massachusetts. They try going down, but it's stormy. The ship almost sinks. The captain goes back says, you're going to have to get off the boat in Massachusetts. And the pilgrims are like, uh, we got a problem. Who's going to be in charge? There's no king-appointed person on our boat. It's just us. They do something revolutionary. They give themselves the authority to start a government. And they agree to submit to the laws under God, and it works. It's a little polarity change. Have you ever turned a little magnet from positive to negative? That's what happened in the pilgrim boat. And so the Mayflower Compact, um, it starts off with uh, one of the lines, we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic to enact just and equal laws as shall be thought most meet Unto which we promise all due submission. Simple revolutionary. The whole world at the time was ruled by sultans and kings and, and dictators and Ivan the Terrible and, and Russia and, and so forth. And here, uh, the, the pilgrims take the top down form of government and they flip it and make it a bottom up form of government. We decide. And the pastor that gave them the idea was John Robinson, and he was a um, Congregationalist pastor. What's that? In England, you had Anglican, sort of like Catholic with priests, but they had Anglican priests, and it was all king-appointed down to the bishops and everything. Well, they were dissenters, and they fled to Holland, and they had a congregational form of government where the people in the congregation prayed and voted. <laughs> and all, all they did was apply it to the government government. And so, again, we switch from a top— the pilgrims are important because we switch from a top-down to a bottom-up. And it's the difference between a dead pyramid where you're uh, ruling— or a live fruit tree, right? Where every root participates, every little capillary, every cell is sucking in nutrients to make this thing alive. And so what we have in America is a citizen-dependent form of government, a bottom-up form of government that was taken from this congregational form of church government. And um, so the story in New England was you had pastors and churches starting communities. So this is a painting of the pilgrims, and there's their pastor, John Robinson, and there's Elder William Brewster in an open Bible. And this painting uh, hangs in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And um, I figured out there must be a delay on the click. And... uh, Uh, So the uh, different colonies in New England, you have John Cotton was the pastor in Boston, John Lothrop and his church founded Barnstable, Massachusetts. Reverend Roger Williams and his church founded Providence, Rhode Island. Reverend John Wheelwright and his church founded Exeter, New Hampshire. And then Reverend Thomas Hooker and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. So what was the situation? Puritans were persecuted in England. They came across. Once they got across, what did they do? (laughs) They wanted to make everybody Puritan. And so that's when... The pastors, like Roger Williams, fled and founded another community called Rhode Island and uh, the First Baptist Church in America, which has a congregational form of church government. And then Thomas Hooker says, okay, uh, I'm going to flee with my church. And he says, okay, church, next Saturday, we're all going to meet in the parking lot. Get your wagons and your cows, and we're going to leave. And we're going to go hill and dale, and we're going to find a nice little spot, make friends with the Indians, chop down trees, and we're going to have a little community. And after they do that, the people come to the pastor and they say, okay, pastor, i um, we're all here and everything, but how do we do the government thing? And so the pastor digs in the Bible. And so these pastors are looking at what part in the Bible? The first 400 years when Israel came out of Egypt, it's called the Hebrew Republic before King Saul. Remember that? And so uh, this is a unique period that America's founders looked back at. And, um, so, you know, they did get some ideas from the Greeks and, and the Romans and, uh, and so forth, but ultimately England. And um, I'm clicking fast, but the, it's transitioning from slide to slide a little slow. Um, so this is called the Great Awakening Revival. Uh, these are pastors in our uh, founding era, and they're influencing the communities who are also in- influencing the government And um, so our U.S. Constitution was written, but it needed to be ratified. And so they need nine states to ratify it. They had eight. New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth, but they were having a deadlock. So Harvard President Samuel Langdon shows up and he gives an address titled The Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. And he goes on saying, instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American Union see this application plainly. And so they vote and they ratify it. And the U.S. Constitution goes into effect after this sermon, the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. What was the Republic of the Israelites? It was that first 400 years when they came out of Egypt. Now, who controlled everything in Egypt? The Pharaoh. He owned the people, the cattle, the land. Who controlled stuff in Mesopotamia? Oh, the kings, King Og of Bashan and King Sihon or whatever. And so when Israel comes in there for 400 years, no king. And the law says there's no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone is to be treated the same. Male, female, made in the image of the creator. Even the stranger living amongst you is under the same law that you're under. And um, this was the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. That everyone you see is, is equal to you. There's no royal family to butter up next to. And so Israel was unique on the planet. Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. You see, wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he'll take away the land and kill you. (laughs) In Israel, the land was permanently titled to the families. And um, if they got in a pinch and sold the land, every 50 years it reverted back. And so this prevented a dictator from gathering up the land and putting the people back under into slavery. Now, if you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being Blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. <laughs> you got capital the stuff, you work hard to save it, right? And so um, it's called the Promised Land," because the people got to own the land. Israel was the first nation with no police. Not only did the people get taught the law, the people were responsible to enforce the laws, like everybody in the country was deputized. and uh, Israel was the first nation with no prisons. Uh, They had no standing army. So uh, where you have a king, the king has an army to enforce his will. In Israel, every man was in the militia and armed and ready at a moment's notice to defend his family and his community. And Israel had no uh, prisons. Remember, Joseph in Egypt was wasting away in prison for a couple years. In Israel, when someone committed a crime, they had the trial right then and there at the city gates. And there was a city of refuge you could run away to, to await a trial, but it was swift. And Israel was the first nation with a bureaucracy-free welfare system. So in Egypt, people were selling their souls to the Pharaoh for a handout of grain. In Israel, when somebody harvested their land, they left the gleanings for the poor people to pick through. This way, the poor were taken care of without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out to those who can help them stay in power. And Israel was uh, the first nation with a system of honesty. And so this provided a basis for commerce, that God hates unjust weights and measures. And then Israel got to choose their own leaders. So we're talking forms of government. We're talking king appointed, king appoints everybody. And so Israel, the people got to choose. You think they did? Well, in Deuteronomy, Moses spake unto the children of Israel... How can I alone bear your burden? Take you, wise men, understanding, and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. And so Moses didn't go out among three million people and say, "Uh, you, 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 you're the leaders. No, he said to them, take you, wise men, known among your tribes. Bring them to me, and I'll recognize them. It was a bottom-up form of government. It was people dependent. And the... Uh, anyone could be raised up into leadership. I mean, here's Gideon from a nobody family. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's Deborah, a woman. She becomes a national leader in Israel, not because she's related to a king or a Pharaoh. She knows the law. She's honest. The reputation spreads. People make their way all the way across the country. She sits under a tree. hears the cases, knows the laws, tell them what the decision is. And she's a leader. Where else in the world at this time in history could a woman who's not related to anybody important become a national leader? Israel had a bottom-up form of government, and it had this opportunity there. And so Harvard president Samuel Langdon continues, the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages, governments upon Republican principles. A republic is where the people are king ruling through representatives. Langdon goes on, from abject slavery, a mere mob, to a well-regulated nation under laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. Here they are, the whole world is kings, they come out of 400 years of slavery, and they have the most unique form of government, and it works. It wasn't like something they stumbled across. Let's try this for a little while. No, it was a complete system. And so, it actually confirms how, how divine it was. Now, Israel was the first nation that could read. I think, really? Uh, Writing again, was invented around uh, 3300 BC, Sumerian cuneiform, uh, and it was just to keep records for the kings. So the first invention ever it was what? Who knows what it was? A plow, right? Cain was a tiller of the soil. And so uh, people started hitting each other with it, and they turned it into weapons. And what happened next? People gravitated together for protection. And what happens when you get people together? Somebody ends up being a little bit better at knowing how to fight than the rest. And you say, you be our captain. And it's good. You fight and defend yourself so you can live. But then this person has kids and grandkids who claim to be an elite class. Well, my granddad's the one we're all indebted to. And my family's a little extra special. Everybody wants to be friends with him. Before you know it, you're back to that elite hierarchical pyramid system. And so kings want to count everything they own. And so they would have scribes to count it. So in China, the emperor's developed a way of counting with knots in ropes, (laughs) little knots, right? And then in Sumeria, they had an abacus, rods with beads you'd slide back and forth. And then they developed tokens in dishes. So you got a barn, how much is in there? Well, there's a little dish in front with little tokens. And then they made markings on the tokens. Have you ever tallied where you draw the lines, one, two, three, four, and a line across for five? That was the beginning of writing, an accounting method for kings to keep track of everything they own. And then it kept track of the king's decrees and king's genealogies and so forth. And so in Samaria, they had 1,500 cuneiform characters. I don't know about you, but memorizing 1,500 anythings is not fun. Yeah. But it was only for kings and scribes. In Egypt, they had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters. And only 1% of Egypt could read. Writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. They kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. And uh, in China, they had 10,000 characters, but it was just for court records. And so if you want to be a dictator and control people's lives, you want them to be ignorant. And so it's interesting in Virginia and North Carolina, prior to the Civil War, they actually had laws making it a crime to teach slaves to read because it was easier to control them if they were ignorant. And so Frederick Douglass, the Republican advisor to Lincoln, tells the story about growing up on a plantation and the slave master's sister-in-law was teaching him the alphabet. The slave master walks in, yells at her, says, don't you dare teach slaves to read. They'll grow discontent and run away. Frederick Douglass says, that was my first sermon on why I wanted to learn how to read. Right, he's a little older, he's in the house looking at a newspaper. They see him trying to sound out the words. They snatch the newspaper away, chase him out of the house. Right, so if you want to control people, you want them to be ignorant. Maybe go through some Common Core type of behavioral modification stuff, but you don't really want them to achieve academic excellence anyway. And so, when Moses comes down the mountain, he doesn't just have the law. Right? He has. I'm, I'm going to share this one quote: Anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss. Ancient writings' main function was to facilitate the enslavement of other human beings, right? Because only this elite class could read, and it was their little way of communicating. When Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. He has the law in a 22-character alphabet, not 1,500 characters, 3,000 or 10,000. 22 characters, so easy to learn. Kids could learn how to read. No longer was reading and writing the secret knowledge of this elite class the whole country could read. Israel is the first instance of a literate populace. The first letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. Second letter is Beth. Sounds familiar? Alpha, Beth, right? And so we see that Israel was a, citizen, a citizen-based government where you had an uh, educated and moral populace that ruled themselves. It's sort of like a parent gives the teenager the car keys and says, you can come home whenever because I know you're going to do what's right. You have internal morals. But if you don't do what's right and you drink and drive and party you're going to be pulled over by the police and thrown in jail and controlled behind bars. So, teenager, you are going to be controlled, either voluntarily from the inside or forcibly by the police from the outside. Same way with a nation. We're either going to be voluntarily controlled with internal morals, or we're going to give in to our passions and lusts, and it's going to be total chaos, and we're going to have some dictator come in with his army to try to enforce his will and we move back to a king. Anyway, so... um. Uh, Harry S. Truman, the fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the mount. And um, if we don't have a proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government, which does not believe in rights for anybody except the state. And so uh, this spectrum of power. uh, So one side's total government. The other side's no government. Everybody hold up a fist in one hand and say concentrated power. Concentrated power. And fingers apart where the others say separated power. Separated. Then back to the fist. concentrated power. Okay. That's world history. For most of world history, power is in the hands of the kings, pharaohs, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsars. Every now and then, people get a chance to stretch the rubber band and rule themselves without a king. But in times of crises, the rubber band snaps back. So if we got total government on one side, no government on the other side, no government's anarchy, right? Unless the people have internal morals. It's like everybody has a behavioral app on their iPhone right? Like a, like an Uber app. You don't have some business that's telling you, you can do it on your own. And so everybody has downloaded, everybody in Israel has downloaded this behavioral app called The Law. It's an internal thing. But wait a second. Why would you follow an internal moral? What would cause you to deny yielding to a selfish temptation? Well, ancient Israel had the key ingredient, a God who is watching everyone he wants you to be fair and he's going to hold you accountable in the future so you're about to steal you know you can get away with it and then you think god is watching me he wants me to be fair he's going to hold me accountable maybe i should hesitate stealing and it creates something in your head called a conscience (laughs) if everybody in the country believes this you can maintain complete order with no police right so we're talking the most common form of government's a king as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger until the king of England had the biggest. America's founders decided we want to split away from the king and we flip it and make the people the king. But it only works if the people have morals. But what causes them to follow these morals is this God of the Bible. Now, it only works with the God of the Bible. An Islamic Allah God says there's an infidel woman there. Nobody's around. You can rape her. It's okay. The God of the Bible says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So our former government without a king, dependent on people having morals, you're motivated because the God of the Bible is a complete system. Right. Anyway, um, so I talk about uh, how uh, when America broke away, here's a quote from Reagan. Without God, there's no virtue because there's no prompting of the conscience. And uh, another quote from uh, William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president in 1908. There's a powerful restraining influence in the belief that an all-seeing eye scrutinizes every thought and word and act of the individual. And so the, America breaks away from the king, king of England. <laughs> And again, he had a global empire that went from Canada and America and British Guyana and Bermuda, Barbados, Jamaica, countries in Africa from Egypt to Kenya and uh, all of India, a quarter of the world's population, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong. British, he was a globalist and we decided to break away. And um, there's some stories that um, uh, if you can skip ahead with the, um, or if you can, if there's a way to turn turn it, where the clicker can transition from one slide to the other without hesitation. I can click through a bunch of... Okay. Well, then can you skip ahead to a slide? Maybe the one where the, the, the burning of the White House under uh, James Madison. So in, in my book, Miracles in American History, I have stories uh, where there's crisis, the people pray, and things turn around. And so, um, you know, during the Revolution, there's dozens of them. One of them was where uh, the British fill up the New York Harbor with um, 400 ships, 32,000 troops. And again, this is the most powerful Navy military in the world. Uh, Our Continental Congress has a day of fasting and prayer. And they... uh, Send the declaration out. The declaration flips it and makes the people the king, right? All men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And so you sort of leave out the king. Instead of God giving the rights to the king and he distributes it, uh, now it's the people getting the rights uh, directly from the king. Um, uh, But I talk about different times when it looked hopeless, and then the people prayed, things turned around. So I'm going to tell a couple stories. But the Battle of Brooklyn Heights... Um, the 3,000 Americans are killed, only 300 British. And it looked pretty hopeless. Washington watches the brave Maryland regiment and uh, sees all these guys getting killed. And he says, good God, what brave fellows I've lost this day. And then um, we see uh, that Washington is pinned up against the water. And it looks like the next day he's going to be killed and his army is going to be over. And America will be another British colony. But he ferries his troops across the East River to Manhattan Island. And the dawn starts to come up, and he only moved half of his army. And um, the situation looked really serious. But then his chief of intelligence, Major Ben Talmadge, writes that uh, a fog came and was able to allow Washington's troops to finish evacuating. He said, As the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety. And when the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog began to rise off the river, and it seemed to settle in a peculiar manner over both encampments. He goes on, I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well, and so very dense was the atmosphere that I could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance. We tarried until the sun had risen, but the fog remained as dense as ever. And so they were finished uh, evacuating all the troops. And when they finally, Washington was on the last boat that left, when he left the fog lift, the British charged, no one's there. It was the last chance the British had to capture the entire American army all at once. And so there's stories after stories of this during the revolution. And uh, Washington says the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in the course of the war that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. John Jay says, Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of choosing the forms of government under which they should live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. He says, your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourselves. If I was to sum up the greatness of America, it is this line right here. Your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourselves. There's no king in between you and your creator. There's no government structure. There's no, uh, if you were a Christian in North Korea and you were captured, you'd be tortured in a labor camp. If you were born in India in the lowest caste called the Dalits, the untouchables, you would have to spend your life cleaning the sewers. And no matter how good a job you do, you can never graduate and become a Brahmin. They're near divinity in the Hindu belief system. If you were born in Egypt, in Cairo, as a Christian, you would be called garbage people because you'd have to dig through garbage to eke out a living every day because you could never hold a job higher than a Muslim. And so in America, you decide. You can spend the time working and educating yourself. You can improve. You can go in your garage and create some invention. You can do this. Your lives, your liberty, you can decide who you want to marry, where you want to live. Throughout most of history, people have not had these freedoms. And so uh, Ronald Reagan uh, put it this way. In this country of ours took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. And so that's just one of the stories that I wanted to share is how unique America is in world history. Reagan goes on. um, Well, America appears like a last effort of divine providence in behalf of the human race. That was the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. So these are people that say, look, we took the power of a king and we separated it into three branches, separated it, federal to state level, tied it up with ten handcuffs. We call the first ten amendments. All the Constitution is, is a bunch of hurdles to prevent the rubber band from snapping back into the hands of a king. It was actually designed to work inefficiently on purpose. Why? It takes the government so long to get things done. That's the way they wanted it. They realized that the most efficient form of government is a king. He says it, his generals say it, it gets done. And if it doesn't happen, people get their head chopped off. <laughs> so the, our founders made it inefficient. Why? Because they knew it could take a lifetime to build a mansion and one irresponsible match to burn the thing down in a day. So they wanted to make it really slow. So you can't make bad decisions and that are irreversible. And, uh, Anyway, so uh, here we inherited this, where we get to be our own king. We, the people, are the king. A republic is the people or king ruling through their servants called representatives. And so when we pledge allegiance to the flag, you're basically pledging allegiance to you being in charge of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That we collectively get to decide what we want to do. So when somebody dishonors the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. It's like, okay, <laughs> somebody else will rule your life if you're not going to participate in ruling it. Uh, we had a revolution. France had a revolution. France chopped off a bunch of heads, like 40,000 heads in Paris, and then 300,000 in the Vendee. And they decided they wanted to get rid of any vestige of Christianity. Um, and this is, Oz Guinness gives a really good quote. He says the the culture war is basically... Uh, At its deepest roots is a clash between the 1776, what is the American Revolution, and then 1789 heirs of the French Revolution. So France had a revolution, but they wanted to de-Christianize the whole country, and uh, they wanted to rewrite books. and re- Did you know they didn't want 17, uh, they you know, 89 to go done in the year of the Lord like ours? So they made 1792 the new year one. And you go back and, in the third year of the French Republic, in the fourth year, everything's dated by the year of their you know, revolution. And, and so they didn't want a seven day week with a Sabbath rest, right? Today's Sunday. It's the Sabbath rest. So in France, you know what they did? They came up with a 10 day week. They call them decade weeks. And they had 10 hours in the day and 100 minutes to every hour and 100 seconds every minute. Uh, they made every measurement in France divisible by 10. They called it the metric system. Maybe that's why I never really liked the metric system. And Napoleon spread this this metric system all around. They closed down churches. They dug up the the bones of Saint Genevieve, who was like the patron saint of Paris that helped them all to pray so Attila the Hun could pass by. Uh, They tore down statues. They wanted to, it's called this, it was this deconstruction where you separated people from their past, get them into a neutral where they don't remember where they came from, and then you can brainwash them into this socialist communist future that you have planned for them. And so you have to tear down the statues and tear down the history of the country so you could have this, uh, you know, Pol Pot did the same thing in Cambodia. Anybody that wore glasses, he killed because he wanted to kill anybody that had any education, knew anything about the past so they could go into their, you know, Mao Tung did the same thing in China, uh, you know. And so anyway, so during this French Revolution, which is sort of the blueprint for every communist revolution since, they wanted to de-Christianize and tear down all vestiges of the past. No private and public worship was outlawed. Christian education was outlawed. Uh, priests and ministers were executed on site. And um, anyway, it uh, wasn't a really happy time. 300,000 were killed in the Vendée in France. Uh, they put a prostitute in Notre Dame Cathedral, covered her with a sheet, said, this is the goddess of reason, let's worship her. And um, anyway, so here's the, the 1792 calendar with the 10 days in the week and the, and the French Revolution clock with 10 hours in the day. And um, anyway, so what's happening in America this time? Well, we just got done with a war with England, the biggest power in the world. And now we're on the verge of war with France, the second biggest power in the world. And they're capturing 300 of our ships and sticking them in in, in prisons and so forth. And so what do we do? We have a president, uh, John Adams, and he calls for a day of fasting and prayer. And so he has the whole country pray. And uh, in there, it's a Christian prayer. He's talking about praying to... uh, there's John Adams. There are the ships that got taken captive. And um, here's one of the quotes from his uh, day of prayer, where in 1798 and again in 1799, As the people of the United States are still held in jeopardy by insidious acts of a foreign nation, I hereby recommend the day of solemn, humiliation, fasting, and prayer, that the citizens call to mind our numerous offenses against the Most High God, confess them before Him with sincerest penitence, implores pardoning mercy to the great mediator and redeemer, and um, so forth. Anyway, uh, I wish I could skip ahead to some slides for the sake of time, but uh, the, the clicker's going through. Tell you what, why don't you click through the slides while I, <laughs> while I talk. Um, and so have you get to the one where they're burning the White House. So have you ever played with magnets, and the, uh, the magnets stick together? And if you turn one of the magnets, they repel, And, um, the idea is God is one magnet and you're the other. And, uh, as long as you are, uh, facing, uh, God and you're repenting and it sticks and he blesses you. But if you sin, uh, and then turn, uh, he still wants to bless you, but he can't because you're facing the wrong direction. And, um, I didn't know if there's a, a way they could do it in the back there to fast forward, but, um. The God's magnet has two sides to it. One side says, I want to bless you. And the other side says judgment, right? Blessings, cursings. And the you magnet has two sides to it. One side says, uh, repent and believe. And the other side says, uh, sin and and um, doubt. And as long as you have the repent and believe side facing God's I want to bless you side, the magnets stick. But if you turn and have the doubt and sin side facing then um, uh, it repels. And so the idea is that when we are repenting and believing, God can bless us. But when we're in sin, the magnet's faced in the wrong way and God cannot bless us. And so the idea is that we want God to bless us. Before he can bless us, we have to repent of our sin. Now, we talked about kings, power kings concentrating, and God flipped it and made it a people-dependent system. And so how does God turn things around? He turns it around through the people. In other words, each person, each individual person. How's God going to turn the nation around? Through each individual person's heart turning around. Right? So where is the answer to the world's problem? How are we going to fix the world's problem? Right there in your own heart on the cellular level. He's interested in each one of our hearts. That's where the answer is. And so uh, the uh, country is got lots of problems. Where's the answer? It's inside of us. Now, God has plan A and plan B. Plan A is he blesses us so much, we turn to him out of gratefulness. If that doesn't work, there's plan B. He withholds the blessings, and we turn to him out of desperation. Right? And uh, so it's like a parent's got a kid away at college. You're paying the credit card bill. And the kid calls and says, thank you, Dad, you, you bought my books. Thank you, Dad, you, you rescued me today. Thank you, Dad, I used the card for this and, and it helped me out. I, I You don't mind paying it, but let's say you don't hear from them for a while. And then you're seeing the credit card statement and you're paying for booze and cigarettes and online gambling and online pornography. And it's like, whoa, and what are you going to do? I'm going to cancel the card. And then the kid's out there partying and swiping away and all of a sudden the card's not working. What are they going to do? Uh, Call. No, they don't call nowadays. They text, right? Uh, Yeah, the card's not working. You better believe it's not working. I'm not going to pay for that trash, right? So God has been paying our national credit card bill, right? And we've been thanking him. We thank him in our pledge, thank him in days of prayer, days of Thanksgiving, right? And he's blessed us and we, we thank him. But now, no matter how much he blesses us, we're spending his blessings on all kinds of trash. And what are we telling him to do? Plan B, right? And so here we are today with a country with lots of problems and the, the blessings have not turned us to God. So now we got, we've got to face plan B, which means that he might let things get uncomfortable and bad. Why? Because he's interested in the heart. He doesn't judge to judge. The purpose of it is to turn us back to him. And um, uh, so this is the, the one story where the, the British were burning our White House and uh, James Madison was the president. And the situation's really bad. Uh, I mean, here our U.S. capital's being set on fire by the British. This is the War of 1812. But the president was James Madison. He had a day of, of prayer, and lo and behold, uh, in the midst of the British burning our our capital, uh, dark clouds roll in, and the wind grows to a fri- frightening roar, and the um, cannons are picked up off the ground, thrown yards yards away, and the storm comes in with rains, and it extinguishes the fires. And the book, Washington Weather, uh, there's an Admiral George Cockburn. He says, great God, madam, is this the kind of storm to which you are accustomed to in this infernal country? To which the, the lady replied, no, sir, this is a special interposition of providence to drive our enemies from our city. <laughs> and, so, and so we ended up driving them out, and the rains came and extinguished the fires. And... Um, Uh, One British historian said more British soldiers were killed by this stroke of nature than from all the firearms the American troops had mustered in the feeble defense of their city. And so, uh, again, this was a a miracle in American history. The president, Madison, says the enemy by a sudden incursion succeeded in invading the capital of the nation. They wantonly destroyed public edifices. And so he goes on and declares a day of fasting. So here we are today. Our president declared a day of prayer for the hurricane victims in houston and uh, and he's following the tradition of pastors p- p- presidents calling for prayer so here's james madison the british burned our white house a terrible tragedy and he says the two houses of the national legislature expressed that in the time of present calamity and war a day may be recommended to be observed by the people of the united states as a day of public humiliation and fasting and prayer to almighty god and uh and then he says what of confessing our sins and transgressions. He realizes that we're praying for God to move, but he can't move as long as we're in sin, so we got to confess our sins. And so that's the, the attitude that um, the founders had. And this is the, the slides I already mentioned, but I'll skip through them, of the magnets. One side is God, or one magnet's God, and he's got two sides. One side says, uh, I want to bless you, and the other side says judgment. And then the U magnet has two sides, and one side says um, uh, repent and believe, and the other side says sin. So uh, anyway, not sure what's happening with the slides, but I'll quit with that. Now, uh, so how do we repent? It starts with the heart. How does this work? Well, remember Adam and Eve, they sinned against God and hid. Have you ever sinned against anybody? You sort of don't want to be around the person you've sinned against. So let's say you're talking about somebody behind their back, and you're laughing about them joking about them, making fun of them, and all of a sudden that very person starts walking down the hall, and they're walking toward you. Question, are you drawn to want to go over to that person? Or like, oh, great, there they are. I think I'm going to slip out the back. Your own conscience does not want you to be around the person you have sinned against. You got a job. You're working really good. The boss says, hey, I want to see you in my office. Oh, okay. But you got a job you've been stealing, you've been cheating, you've been doing all kinds of bad stuff, and all of a sudden the boss comes by your desk and says, I want to see you in my office. Do you want to go into that office? <laughs> no. You don't want to be around the person you've sinned against. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God still wanted to be around, but they're like, ah, I want to get away. It's so like the magnet turned. So in a sense, it's it's not so much that God sends people to hell, it's once people sin against God, their own conscience won't let them come into his presence. He wants them to come, but our conscience won't let. We got the wrong polarity. Our our magnets facing the wrong way. The closer we get to him, the more we're aware of our sin. So Adam and Eve said, man, we blew it. We got to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God again. Uh, Let's put on fig leaves. That was the beginning of false religions. Man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. Did the fig leaves make Adam and Eve acceptable to God? No. And this little line, God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. We read it really fast, but if you think of it, how do you make a coat of skin? You have to kill an animal. Do you think God went to the other side of the garden, killed an animal, and brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? (laughs) Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them, and they witnessed the first death ever? Right? The creation just happened, and this is the first thing ever to die. And Adam and Eve are watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying, and they're thinking to themselves, oh, we're the ones that sinned, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear the animal was dying in their place, that right in front of them, he strips the skin off the animal, and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had some blood on it, right? They were covered in the blood. And so for the rest of their lives, they are wearing the skin of that animal that they watched die in their place. And whenever God sees them, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal. The lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel. Cain decides he wants to worship God, but he does an offshoot of the church of the fig leaves. He starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. (laughs) It's a religion of works. And we know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake, and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So here's Cain sweating and working, getting his wheat and his barley and his oats, and he's piling it all on the altar, and it takes a lot of work. And did his works make him acceptable to God? No. Abel trusted in the lamb, right? Sacrificed the lamb. And so here's this picture God's on one side. We're on the other side. Our sins separate us from God, and the lamb pays for the sin. So Abraham sacrificed lambs. Moses had every family in Israel sacrifice lamb, put the blood over the doorpost of its house. The high priest went into the holy of holies with what? The blood of the lamb. He sprinkles it on the mercy seat, right? You got this Ark of the Covenant with two angels, and you got the Ten Commandments inside, and it's got this gold top, and the blood changes it from a judgment seat to a mercy seat. You approach without the blood. You're approaching the Ten Commandments. Now you've broken them. But you have the blood. You're it on top and say, okay, yeah, I've broken them, but this blood paid the price. And so Solomon had a 1,000 lambs sacrificed when he dedicated the temple. Finally, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So God's on one side. We're on the other side. Our sins separate us from God, and the Lamb pays for the sin. So I ask people, are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? If you are still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I hope I put enough stuff on the altar. Maybe a couple more handfuls of barley. That'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me. It's this lamb that was nice enough to die in my place. Now, why did the lamb have to die? God is a just God. He has to judge every sin. If he lets some of the sins slide by, he wouldn't be a completely just God. If there's a judge downtown at the courthouse and he's letting all the crooks off the hook, he's going to get a reputation of being a corrupt judge. And God is perfectly just, so he has to judge every sin. So what's going to happen? He provides the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. So he's completely just, but he's completely love. So, the lamb. There's two things about it. One is the lamb had to be spotless. Jesus, if he he would have sinned one time, he could not have been our substitute. But second is Jesus had to die willingly. If God the Father would have had Jesus crucified against Jesus' will... God the Father would have been unjust for killing a completely spotless, innocent man. So the whole plan of redemption came down to this one moment where if Jesus sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and he finally says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. He, out of love for the Father and out of love for us, decided that he would be the, the Lamb to take the judgment for every one of our sins. You know, I was reading the book of Revelation and it talks about God pouring out all these vials of judgment. I thought, why is that? Well, once and for all, he's got to settle the score for all eternity and judge every sin. So you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there were these sins and you never judge them. Maybe there's a part of you that's unjust. No, he judges them all. The smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. And it says in the book of Revelation, righteous and true are thy judgments, O Lord. So he's got to pour out the sins, right? Because he's just God, he got to judge. You know, that's been implanted in us so much that every police drama you see on TV starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes. Right? You're watching NCIS or when he shows the first two minutes, some innocent person gets killed. And then you're held captive the rest of the hour wanting the person that did it to be brought to justice. You know that he's got to have, the guy's got to get caught. And as soon as he's caught, you feel this, this feeling that that's the way it's supposed to be. And whenever it says, to be continued, you're like, no. <laughs> and so in the first two minutes of the book of Genesis, an injustice is done. Cain kills Abel. God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was it crying? An injustice is done. Innocent guy killed. You're a just God. You've got to judge the guy that did it. That's the only side of God that the devil knew. So he's Lucifer. He's this beautiful angel. Gets puffed up with pride. Wants to put his throne higher than the throne of God. God says, you sinned against me, you're out. So that's the only side of God that the devil. You sin against God, you're out. And so the devil goes into the garden, sees Adam and Eve, and says, Hey, if I can get Adam and Eve to sin against God one time, God will have to judge him. He's a just God. He gets them to sin. He goes, Ha-ha. And God sends this fireball of judgment, but in the lamb and takes the hit. So God is just in that he judges every sin. He's love, and that he provided the lamb to take the judgment. You know, I was preaching in Kansas one time, and it was flat. And a uh, little farmhouse, community, you know, with silos. And the pastor says, yeah, you can see forever out here, but there's nothing to see. Sure enough, it's cornfields on the horizon all the way around. The worst thing that can happen is a hailstorm. And you can stand in the field and get hailed upon, or you can run in the barn. And the hail comes and hits the tin roof of the barn. Tin, ting, ting, you know? And so uh, the, the, the barn takes the hit for you. You're inside of the barn, and you're protected. People say, oh, I don't, I don't need Jesus. It's like, dude, that's like standing in the cornfield and getting hailed upon. It's like God has to judge your sin. Otherwise, he's an unjust God. And so every sin you do, he's got he's to judge it. Otherwise, he's unjust. That means the hailstorm is coming. Or you can run in the barn. The hail comes, but it hits the roof of the barn. Ding, ding. And God is just and he sends the judgment, but Jesus is our barn. We're in Christ. He took the hit for us. Anyway, so here's Jesus. He's sweating in the, in the, the garden. Why is he sweating? He's seeing that the book of revelation judgment is about to be poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself. And, um, you know, it says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. I mean, he experienced that, that day of crucifixion as if it was a thousand years, right? And um, I heard one person, he's into math. He says, it's like an equation. If you have an eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, it's equal to all the finite beings who are guilty suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all the finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Jesus suffered eternal damnation in our place. He experienced it to that extent. So when we approach God, we're approaching through the blood of Jesus that he took the punishment. So I just want to pray. We want you to pray. Just don't pray in Jesus' name. It's like, dude, I don't have any faith that my fig leaves and my barley and my works are making me uh, have an audience with the king of the creator of the universe. But I believe that the lamb that he provided and all these prophecies that show that, yes, Jesus was the fulfillment. And I'm going to approach God through the blood of the lamb that he provided. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why we sing praises to Jesus. And the Father, out of love, sent Jesus. Jesus, out of love for us, became the Lamb so that we can approach God without any consciousness of sin. You know, it's actually an insult to Jesus' sacrifice to even remember your sin. Oh, I'm I'm did, Yeah, Jesus forgive me, but I did this sin. You're saying that your sin is greater than Jesus' sacrifice. You... You acknowledge the greatness of his sacrifice by forgetting the, the guilt of your past sins, right? You're, by, by, by forgetting, you're saying, I believe that his sacrifice was so powerful. It paid the 100% for every evil thing that I did. Therefore, I can be free. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove us from our iniquities, from our sins. So we can approach God out of praise and worship, knowing that all of our sins and guilt is gone, and we stand righteous before Him. by Because of the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. Thank you so much.